Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon Wamase, one of my writers. In this case, Arnaldo writes me a script. This one, I uh, I looked up the pronunciation before because it's, uh, it's set in France. So, like, there's going to be a lot of French stuff. And uh, I... I'm going to try my best. Look, this is called The Remand Affair. But I looked it up and it's actually pronounced The Remand Affair. So, I'm going to do my best to get it right. With French, don't you, it's like if it's spelled R-O-M-A-N-D. You just throw that D away and be like, Ramon, the Ramon affair. And uh, we should make stop making fun of it because it's the slaying of three generations. So uh, it's going to be, uh, well, it's going to be death, isn't it? Anyway, let's jump in. The format here is I've never read this before. It's all new to me. We're going to explore it together. Let us go. It's the 9th of January, 1993. It's 4am and nobody could be seen on the streets of Brevesaumont. It's a picture of... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to stop doing a sarcastic French accent. I mean, I, I can't promise that. I'm sorry. I just can't promise it. As picturesque village in southern France, so close to the Swiss border, that Geneva is only 10 kilometers away. Nobody's around except a crew of street cleaners, those two frequently unsung heroes who ensure our streets are not Victorian-era hellholes riddled with cholera. And tonight, this crew proves to be heroic in another way. One of them notices smoke coming out of a large house and then the flicker of a flame. Isn't that the family home of the big shot doctor, the one who works for the World Health Organization in Geneva? The cleaners immediately alert the firefighters who rush to the scene. All the doors and windows are shut, but the brigade smashes their way in. Inside, fire and smoke have now invaded the entire building. Nobody expects to find survivors until a window on the upper floor is flung open and the man in the upstairs bedroom is still alive and he's managed to drag himself to the window, gasping for air before passing out. The firefighters rush to rescue the man, Dr. Jean-Claude Ramon, who is driven to a nearby hospital. Time for him to be a patient for once. In the meantime, the fire has been tamed. The firefighters survey the scene and find what they feared the most, the carbonized remains of Dr. Ramon's family members laying in their beds. His wife, Florence, the two children, Caroline, aged just seven, and Antoine, aged just five. But Jean-Claude Ramon is not notified immediately as he slipped into a coma. Authorities have to notify somebody of what's happened, the closest relatives both in terms of kin and geography. Jean-Claude's parents, living some 80 kilometers north of Prévesant in Clavaux-le-Lac. Dr. Ramon's uncle and a local doctor knock on the door, but they realize that there's something very, very wrong. Mr. Aimé Ramon, his wife Anne-Marie, and even their Labrador have all been shot dead. Oh my god. This guy's a doctor, and he's got a young family, and this is feeling like some sort of, you know, Mexican cartel slaying. Like, what's going on? Why did we stumble into the plot of Sicario? I don't like it. In the meantime, an autopsy conducted on the remains of Florence and her children confirms that they too had been killed. The little boy and girl had been shot, while their mother was struck down by a blunt object. Dr. Ramon had it all. Dr. Ramon had a st- Uh-oh. Is Dr. Ramon- I don't want to say already because I don't know and I don't want to be like accusing the dude who's in a coma while his entire family is dead of being the murderer but the way that being the 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 perpetrator but the way that Arnaldo's saying like he had it all is implying that uh oh <laughs> is this gonna take the twist that he killed them all because that's f***ed up dude 
Dr. Amar had a stellar career with the WHO, a loving family, a circle of friends who had admired him and relied on his advice. Medical, yes, but also financial, as Jean-Claude had a reputation for identifying the most profitable investments from within the circle of Swiss bankers that he frequented in Geneva. Dr. Amar had lost it all in the span of a single night. All he had ever been had been wiped out by an unknown hand. Okay. <laughs> Might have jumped the gun on accusing him of being a murderer there. My bad. Shame on you. Who could have desired the death of Jean-Claude, of his children, his wife, his parents, even their dog? To find the answers, we'll have to look into the folds of Jean-Claude's past. But beware, along the way, we will uncover two unreliable narrators. Florence and Jean-Claude Florence Crowley and Jean-Claude Ramon first started dating in the spring of 1975, while they both attended their first year of medical school at the University of Lyon. They had already known each other for quite some time. Actually, they were in fact distant cousins. But their relationship came to an early end in 1976 when Florence failed her exams to progress to the second year of medicine. She decided to switch to pharmacy and to stop seeing Jean-Claude so that she could fully focus on her studies. Jean-Claude too plunged into an almost monastic life of compulsive studying, seldom leaving his student quarters. He was always happy, however, to leave a self-confinement to help Florence prepare for her exams. It seems like the young Ramon simply refused being friend-zoned or cousin-zoned, I should say. <laughs> they were distant cousins. Give the guy a break. What's the law? Like, you can't marry a cousin anymore. Although that was surprise. What? There's some crazy statistic of, like, half-marriages in history were between cousins, which, to, like, our modern sensibilities, is like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um... Uh, but, like, if they're distant cousins, that's got to be, like, third or fourth removed. You don't know who those people are. You could just stumble across those people. And I would be it would be really hard to figure that out because you don't often talk about your great-great-grandparents, do you? You'd have to get... You'd do one of those My Heritage things, which is a sponsor. You'd be like, uh-oh, that name looks familiar. That's my girlfriend's surname. And then you'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Months of relentless badgering paid off, and the two became a permanent couple. That's, uh, I mean, don't take that as an advice, guys. And a pretty happy one at that as they completed each other. Jean-Claude was studious, dependable, charming, and also very introverted. Florence, on the other hand, had a warm and outgoing personality, which helped Ramon expand his circle of friends. The two married in 1984, and soon their nights were made sleepless by the welcome arrival of Caroline, born in 1985, and Antoine, born in 1987. In between those two births, Jean-Claude announced a happy triple whammy to Florence, his, his proud parents, and his adoring parents-in-law. In 1986, he had finally fully graduated as a doctor in medicine. Not only that, he had been immediately hired at the Lyon offices of INSERM, the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research. And that INSERM position got him another, even better job at the WHO offices in Geneva. Every day, Jean-Claude would drive across the border with Switzerland and enter the impressive headquarters of the organization. When he returned home at night, he seldom spoke about his job to relatives and friends. Even Florence knew very little about it. She only knew that Jean-Claude conducted high-level medical research, of which the details were confidential and probably too boring to discuss, or probably so interesting that he can't discuss them. I mean, I can't imagine there's a lot of work that the WHO does that is, like, fully... I mean, obviously, they're dealing with medical records, so it's, like, low-level confidentiality of, like, you know, people's personal details and stuff. But I don't imagine they're, like, working on super viruses and stuff, are they? Is that what the WHO do? <laughs> they, do they, they do, like, global health policy. Right? Oh god, I know nothing about this. It's embarrassing. <laughs> 
But she knew that his job was very serious and very demanding, so much so that she knew better than to call him at the office. John claude in fact, preferred that she contacted him by pager. If there was an emergency at home, she had to drop him a simple message via pager, one digit from one to nine, depending on the seriousness of the matter. He would then call her back as soon as he got a spare minute. It sounds like a dick, but I love that system. Because often, you know, I, I don't like, like, I work here alone, and one of the reasons that I think I get so much done is because I, I'm here at work, I'm not disturbed for, like, the whole day. And, yeah, my wife will ring me, and it's like, I don't want to say it's not nice to hear from her in the day, it is nice, but I've also got a shit ton to do, and I'm like, yeah, I'd quite like to implement, she'll never go for this, she'll be like, uh, Simon, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'll be like, yeah, but then you could send me the number and I could call you back, and she's like, or I could just call you. <laughs> And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> but Jean-Claude and Florence seldom had to face emergencies as their life was pretty smooth sailing. Or as Arnaldo's written it, sailing smooth. <laughs> Which I kind of like. The WHO paid very well. They had a nice house, drove a BMW, and enrolled the kids in the most prestigious private school of the area. Florence felt safe in Jean-Claude's hands, who also had a knack for wealth management. Thanks to his WHO contacts, it turns out that he had access to special deals with banks in Geneva. One of those banks would offer an 18% interest rate on savings accounts? That's not realistic. Um, unless, I mean, it was there was a period of super high inflation in the 90s, wasn't there, in Europe? Um... But 18% is like, that is what Bernie Madoff's scam was 11%. I'd be very, very wary of that. Unless inflation's incredibly high, of course. Soon, several friends and relatives, including Florence's father and brothers, took advantage of the deal, entrusting their savings to Jean-Claude. Florence's father, Pierre Crillet, was very close to his son-in-law. They were very close also on a tragic October day in 1988. The two were alone, inspecting some renovation works at Pierre's house, when he fell off a ladder and suffered a heavy blow to the head. When the ambulance arrived... It was too late. Mrs. Crillet fell into a deep depression. Luckily, she could count on Florence for emotional support and on Jean-Claude to sort out all of those annoying practical issues following Pierre's death. Her dependable son-in-law took care of selling the Crillet's country house and invested the proceedings into a Swiss account. And life resumed as usual. Look, I'm so skeptical of that interest rate and him taking all the money and it just being like a standard thing and taking other people's money to invest that I'm like, I think this guy is maybe getting scammed, and this is going to lead to his life falling apart, and to his potential... Did we say, did we decide whether he was the murderer yet? I don't know, look, something's up here, isn't there? Something's up. Look, if any... Look, don't don't fall for these scams. Always remember, Bernie Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. The biggest Ponzi scheme in history. And he was giving you 11% interest rate a year. If there is something giving you more than that... Be incredibly wary of it. Incredibly wary. I had friends. I was I went out with a mate of mine last night, and he was telling me how a friend of mine lost an extraordinary amount of money in this um, Celsius crypto thing. And even my mate was like, he was like telling, him, "Oh, you got to invest in this. You got to invest in this." To, to my other mate, and he was like, "No, dude, it doesn't seem right because the interest is just so crazy high." And these things, if the interest is that high, if the in- just don't. It's a scam. You're just getting scammed. And this is a smart dude. Super smart dude. And he got scammed by this. Dude. Like, like six figures. Ha- not, not low six figures. It's crazy. 
Florence worked sporadically in the local pharmacy, but mostly looked after the kids. As Jean-Claude's career continued to thrive, his work demanded he spend more and more time away from home. In Dijon, for example, where he had been invited to lecture at the university, or in Paris, where he had to meet with Bernard Coucher, the Minister of Health, or even abroad. As a big fish with the WHO, Dr. Ramon had to attend frequent international conferences. Florence dropped him off at the Geneva airport, where he made it just in time for his flights to the US or Japan. He would return days later, arms loaded with presents for the kids. Nonetheless, Florence could not put to sleep a nagging feeling deep inside of her. As she confided to a friend, she felt there was something off, something mysterious about Jean-Claude, about the quiet, introverted, reliable Jean-Claude. After all, she knew so little about his actual work, and had never met any of his colleagues, whom he described as old, tedious, and not worth seeing in a social setting. Uh-oh, does he even work at the WHO? Is his whole life a scam? Is he even a doctor? <laughs> I know they went to medical school and stuff, but is his whole life fake? Is his whole life a lie? I know I'm really jumping ahead here, but I'm, I, I could be totally wrong. Is anyone else getting that vibe? <laughs> that his whole life could be a lie and he's just a fabulous con man? Holy shit, and he's just taking all this money? And he's not getting scammed by the 18% thing. He is the scammer. But he's gone really deep into this con because he's got kids and shit. Oh my lord. Uh, surely not. <laughs> she wouldn't have been surprised, Florence told her friends, if he had been a Soviet spy. Her suspicions grew in December of 1992. One day at school pickup time, Florence struck up a conversation with a lady whose husband was a WHO employee too. Her new friends mentioned she should take a daughter to the WHO building to see the Christmas tree they set up every year for the employees' families. Would Florence take her children too? Florence was surprised. She had never heard about the tradition, but all she commented was, this time I really must get mad at my husband. Around the same time, the president of the school board needed to contact Jean-Claude at his office, but he could not find Ramon's name on the WHO directory. When the school official mentioned this to Florence, she was puzzled and promised she'd look into this. A few days later, she was found dead. Oh, what? Um, uh, okay. That took. Wait, his wife was found dead? Or the school board? No, his wife. Oh my god. She's going down. As good as gold. It's now time to reveal the first of our unreliable narrators. And that would be me, dear Simon, dear listeners. But I apologize for that, but I thought it was important to tell you this story from the point of view of Florence first, before revealing the perspective revealing it from the perspective of our main character, Jean-Claude Romain. And in doing so, I had to necessarily conceal some important details. Because, you see, Jean-Claude Romain is the second unreliable narrator of this tale. The unreliable narrator of his entire life. He, ah, 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 he is, isn't he? His life's a lie! But let's proceed in order. Jean-Claude Romain was born on the 11th of February, 1954, in lens le saunier central France. His father, Ami, a forester, taught him at an early age the values of honesty and sincerity. The word of a Romain is as good as gold, he used to say. On the other hand, Jean-Claude was encouraged to hide from his mother, Anne-Marie, any unpleasant piece of news. Mrs. Ramon suffered from ill health throughout her life and had suffered from two miscarriages. Husband and son, therefore, did their best not to upset her further. But these mixed messages may have blurred the lines between honesty and white lies in Jean-Claude's psyche. As he grew up, he constantly felt the need to meet his parents' expectations, either by achieving what he set out to do or by lying about the results. Jean-Claude's studies progressed quite well in school, but he hit a roadblock as soon as he entered higher education. In 1971, he signed up for the School of Forest Studies to fulfill his ambition of becoming an engineer within the National Forestal Office. This doesn't sound like medical school, does it? Does it? His whole life's a lie. 
Oh my. Jean-Claude, however, was the victim of a hazing ritual which put him off from continuing his studies. The young Ramon retreated to his family home, claiming to suffer from severe sinusitis, which prevented him from returning to university. It was the first of a series of pitiful lies which would set him on a spiral, a vortex, a maelstrom of ever-expanding deceit. This is one of the crazy things. It's like, it starts off with this little lie about sinusitis, so the next thing you know, you're murdering your family. Allegedly, perhaps. We don't know yet. Um, Because these things spiral out of control. I was reading about the Bernie Madoff thing, and it was like, yeah, he just started off with this little scam, and then he was like, oh, he needed to do it to someone else, and then he needed to do it to someone else, and the next thing you know, you're like $40 billion in. It's like, ah, what's going on? And I mean, obviously it's his fault. Obviously he should have stopped, but it is interesting to see how these things just spiral out of control, isn't it? In 1973, Jean-Claude took another shot at university, this time signing up for medicine in Lyon. There we go. His first year went swimmingly, got good grades, and started courting Florence. All right then. But before starting the 1974-1975 academic year, he had to pass the mandatory physiology exam. But on the morning of the exam, Jean-Claude did not hear the alarm clock ringing, and he missed the test. Bro. Bro, bro, bro. You're in like, you're doing well in medical school. You got a mandatory exam. Set two alarms. Are you insane? I've never missed an important exam in my life. And I've had many exams because they're important. You don't miss them. He had the chance to retake it some months later, but he also missed the second attempt after breaking his wrist. Okay, more forgivable. At this stage, he had a couple of options within the realm of normality. Try a third time, or for example, or admit defeat. Admit to himself that those were just excuses and he did not wish to continue studying medicine. Perhaps he could have switched to pharmacy, like Florence had done. But Jean-Claude Remar, whose word was as good as gold and who could not disappoint those around him, went for another route. He lied. He told friends and family that he'd nailed the exam. As he later declared, I prepared to run away rather than sitting the exam. This is when the farce started. I never thought I could take it so far. That's the thing. It spirals out of control. Because you just like tell one little lie and then you're like, oh god. Someone asked, how did that exam go? Yeah, yeah, it went good. Should we talk about something else? And they're like, no, tell me more. You're like, oh god. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing because we know how this ends. Oh my god. And take it far, he did. For the rest of his alleged academic career, Jean-Claude kept mostly to himself, secluded in his student lodgings. Now and then he'd parade around the university halls, making sure he was spotted when exams were taking place. Ironically, he spent almost all of his time studying medical books and scientific journals. If only he dared sit those tests, he would have passed with flying colors, but it was easier just to sit around in his room, telling his parents, Florence, and his friends that yes, he had sat and nailed another exam. Wait, isn't doesn't the university have paperwork and stuff? I feel like if I failed, say you're at university and then you just fail a bunch of exams and you show up the next year, you're not going to be on any of the registers because you failed and you didn't go or you didn't go. And isn't he in like student, uh, they said student quarters, which I assume is like student halls or dorms. So aren't they going to be like, well, you can't stay here because you're not a student because you failed. Isn't, <laughs> or is he just going to be like, no, no, I am, I am, I am. And they'll be like, mate, you're not on the paperwork. Did he, I don't know. It seems strange. Nobody took much notice of Jean-Claude's strange behavioral patterns, except for one of his friends, Luc L'Admiral. But Luc was not suspicious. He was simply concerned, after noticing just one too many absences. In December 1974, Luc confronted Jean-Claude, asking, Is everything all right? This could have been a chance to come clean, at least with the trusted friends, but Roman upped the ante with another huge fib. No, everything was not all right. He told Luke, 
He had just been diagnosed with a type of lymphoma, a cancer of the lymphatic system. Bro, that was just unprompted. <laughs> Why are you doing this? You already got into all of this trouble and you're like, oh, I'm so deep with my lies. Why start a whole nother lie story? No! The further visa fiction allows Jean-Claude to justify his reclusiveness and his absence from lectures while inspiring compassion in those around him. Interestingly, he only shared news about his illness with a handful of friends, but never with Florence nor with his parents. As years wore on, Jean-Claude approached the supposed date of his graduation toward the end of 1986. Now he had to face a major hurdle. His thesis, French students are expected to write a lengthy dissertation, which is then discussed in an oral examination in front of the faculty. Family and friends are traditionally in attendance. Remont managed to evade this step by claiming that he obtained an internship at the Inserm in Lyon. This was his first post as a medical researcher, remember? It, oh yeah, back like in chapter one or whatever. It was, most of all, a prestigious position, which according to him did not require him to complete a thesis. I can understand how his parents may have bought it, with them coming from a different generation and all that, but I cannot comprehend how Florence, a pharmacy graduate, and Luke, a medical student, could fall for that load of crap. But apparently, they did. I didn't have to write a thesis because you could do this thing. It was this weird rule, and I hated like I hate writing long form. Shit. Um, and you could just take two extra modules, and I'm pretty good at exams. Like I'm, I'm de- much better at performing like under pressure and memorizing stuff than I am about like actual deep thought about stuff because I have a small brain. And so I just took two extra modules in my final year of university, and just did that instead of writing a thesis which was a lot more tolerable in my opinion some other people wrote theses and they were talking about them for ages and i was like no i'm just taking two extra subjects and uh yeah i was pretty happy with that to be honest not everybody was so trusting however the head of the administrative section at lyon university noticed some irregularities in jean Clorimand's records she noticed how this student had signed up repeatedly for the second year of medicine but had never sat a single exam when toxic fiction slowly corrodes truth that's exactly who you need to restore order the head of an administrative section. She, she summoned Jean-Claude for a frank discussion in her office, to which Jean-Claude responded by doing what he did best. He fled. He simply ignored the invite and vanished, never to return to the university again. And why should he, after all, he was about to start a shining new career at the World Health Organization. Doctor Who? So, from the perspective of Florence. Every day, Dr. Jean-Claude Roman drove to the WHO, I'm going to say who at some point, aren't I? (laughs) WHO HQ in Geneva, did his research, and then returned home completely knackered. And every month, he would receive a healthy paycheck. And Ramon did enter the WHO offices, but he did so with a visitor pass, and he spent his days hanging out in the areas over to the public. He sat at the cafeteria, consulted medical journals in the library, accessed the post office, and the bank inside the building. You just wander into the WHO and eat in their cafeteria? That seems a bit weird. Maybe this is back in the day. I imagine now they're like, yeah, there's you can't. Security. On other occasions, he would drive, although I'm like, who? I mean, I get, like, terrorism and it's, like, striking at the heart of Western institutions or whatever. I don't I don't know. I don't get it. But um, I feel like striking at the heart of the WHO would be like, what does the WHO do? Oh, it's just full of doctors trying to save lives around the world. <laughs> F*** them! <laughs> I don't know. How did we get on this long tangent? It probably is. You could probably still go walk into the cafeteria because it's the WHO, not, like, the NSA or some shit. On other occasions, he would just drive aimlessly around Geneva, sometimes stopping in service stations to read scientific literature or just take a nap. When the weather allowed for it, he took endless walks in the woodlands, straddling the Franco-Swiss border. He's just saying he's going off to work and he's living a life of leisure, reading magazines, eating in a cafeteria and taking long walks. Sounds kind of nice. 
Hour after hour, day after day of idle activities became years. Years of a life set adrift by the capricious, malicious winds of insincerity. When somebody questions the doctor about his line of work, Ramar skillfully evaded going into any detail or significance. On some occasions, though, he was able to display a profound knowledge of certain medical matters thanks to his readings in the WHO library. A medical specialist of note later commented that he had felt humbled after conversing about cardiology with Ramar. So again, in theory, he could have fulfilled his job rather competently, but narrating an unreliable truth was much easier. <laughs> it feels like, can you imagine just years go by and it's like, man, I could be doing this for real. Why am I so, why didn't I just sit those exams? Why does my life have to be a lie? I mean, I'd miss my walks in the countryside, but at least I'd be doing something useful. And as it got easier, Ramon added more chapters to the novel of his life. He had become a lecturer at the University of Dijon. Oh, now his friends with the Minister of Health, and next week he had to fly to New York for a global WHO convention. <laughs> the reality is he's just walking around in the woods. <laughs> Meeting with the Minister of Health, just strolling in the countryside. WHO New York, strolling in the countryside. Of course, he never flew anywhere. He asked Florence to drop him outside the airport, and then he spent the next few days holed up in a hotel studying medical journals and tourist guides so that he had something to talk about when he returned home, loaded with generic airport gifts for the kids. The question one may now ask is how did he maintain his lifestyle? Oh, that 18%, we're coming back to it. Initially, he replenished his accounts by selling property owned by his parents in Lyon. When that pot was exhausted, he had to come up with something else. You may remember that Roman had access to Swiss banks offering top interest rates for WHO employees. Hello. I hope he didn't buy it the first time because, of course, those bank vaults existed only in his brain. Thanks to his reputation as a dependable and solid professional, Jean-Claude was able to dupe his parents, his parents-in-law, two of his brothers-in-law, as well as other unnamed friends. They entrusted him with their savings in cash. <laughs> hey, man. Yeah, no, I got this great investment, and uh, it's it's in this bank account. It pays like 18%. I'm going to need it in cash. <laughs> It's sketchy. No questions asked, no papers signed, so that he can invest them in Switzerland and return that sweet 18% interest. Needless to say, all the cash went straight into his own account. Estimates vary, but over the six years, he managed to swindle the equivalent of 2.5 million euros from those who held him dear. During his unglorified career, Ramon came up with another repugnant scheme. He once learned that Florence's uncle had been diagnosed with late-stage cancer. Ramon offered to help him. He could provide him with an experimental treatment being investigated at the WHO. Oh my god, what are you up to? But of course, this had to remain a secret between them, and the whole operation implied some professional risks for Jean-Claude, so it came at a price. The desperate patient agreed to pay the equivalent of 15,000 euros in today's value. That is the scummiest thing that I can imagine a person to do. You are a piece of shit, Ramon. I mean, I think we know that already because we know where this story's going by this point. He's not just stealing 2.5 mil. He's, uh, he's murdering his family. So, fuck this guy. Am I right? Ramon dutifully collected the money and dutifully supplied the patient with placebo pills. Florence's uncle quickly succumbed to cancer and never revealed their secret. More patients followed into Ramon's trap. Oh my god, you're doing this for more people? You are a dirtbag, my man. Come on. Now, the type of Ponzi scheme set up by the fake doctor is prone to one vulnerability. What if investors demand their funds back? Normally, swindlers can dupe a new victim and use their money to pay back the first investor. But there is another option available. In September of 1988, Florence's father, Pierre, asked Jean-Claude to divest the savings entrusted to him. He wanted to buy a new car and was in need of cash. Jean-Claude kept procrastinating while Pierre kept on nagging until the day Pierre fell off a ladder. Oh my god. 
I just realized I totally brushed over him falling off a ladder. Firing Roman killed him, didn't he? Because he was onto the scheme and he didn't want to give him his money back and he couldn't. So he killed him. He pushed him off a ladder. Oh my god. According to some accounts, shortly before dying, Pierre mentioned his son-in-law's name. Had the fall been accidental? This remains the official version, but there's a strong suspicion that Ramon may have had a hand in it. Yeah, allegedly. Allegedly. All of this is definitely alleged. Whatever the cause of Pierre's death, it was a blessing for Ramon. Not only was he off the hook, but he would soon be entrusted with the sale of the Creole's country home, an unexpected but very welcome windfall. The next person to challenge Jean-Claude would be his mistress, Corinne Delons. That's right, not content with leading two existences, Roman had to pile up a third secret life on top of that. Oh my god, dude, what the f**k's wrong with you? Why would you make yourself- what? Like, this would be so stressful. I can't imagine li living a life this stressful. It would destroy me. <laughs> third life. The two met in 1990, after Parisian dentist Corinne had ended a long relationship. Feeling abandoned by most of her friends, Corinne accepted the clumsy yet warm courtship of this wealthy doctor. In spring, Jean-Claude took to flying to Paris one day a week with the excuse of meeting the health minister or working with the Pasteur Institute. Instead, he showered Corinne with expensive jewelry and took her dining in top-end restaurants. In August, the two spent a long weekend in Rome, which didn't go as planned. Upon returning, she decided to dump him, in her own words, as Jean-Claude was too sad. To win her back, Ramon resorted to one of the best tricks in his toolbox, pity. In autumn, he revealed to her that his lymphoma, which had been in remission for a long time, had returned and he felt lonely and depressed. This umpteenth lie seemed to work, and in December they resumed the relationship. In January 1991, the two spent five days in St. Petersburg. As you might imagine, his bills kept piling up, but luck was once again on his side. After the Russian trip, Corinne dumped him again, but wished for the two to remain friends. In fact, she needed some friendly advice. She just sold a flat for the equivalent of 137,000 euros and asked him how best she could invest the money. <laughs> No. Roman enacted a well-rehearsed play. He convinced her to withdraw the entire amount in cash and hand it to him so that he could invest in one of those 18% interest accounts that he knew about. And all went fine until November 1992 when Corinne demanded her money back. Jean-Claude tried to stall her, appealing to her compassion by resurrecting the good old cancer fib, but this time she was undeterred. As she kept insisting, in December more of Roman's scam victims asked for their investments to be returned. At the same time, Florence started to suspect that her husband's entire career was built on a flimsy foundation, a castle of wafer-thin cards, which was about to tumble. Florence, you bang on. Although there's two unreliable narrators, so are we still getting an unreliable story here, or is this like close? This feels like the truth, because this isn't told from anyone's perspective, right? I think we're beyond that. This is like what actually went down, allegedly. The only possible solution. The 8th of January 1993 was a Friday. Dr. Ramon returned home after a supposed busy day of hard work. As usual, he was welcomed warmly by his family. That day, Jean-Claude had received word from his mother. The bank had notified her that her account was 40,000 francs overdrawn, about 9,000 euros in today's money. It was an account she shared with her son, another pot he had thoroughly drained. This may have been the last signal that the game was up. There was nowhere else to hide, no more victims to fleece. It may have been the right occasion to come clean, but that's something that Roman just couldn't do. Yeah, dude. I mean, he's gonna find out. They're all gonna find out that he was lying about his career, he's lying about everything. It's That is an absolute disaster for him. I mean, it's all a disaster for him. There's no good way for this to end. Um... Yeah, but as we know, it ends in a particularly bad way. 
There was only one solution in his warped mind. He reassured his mother that he'd speak to the bank and sort everything out. Later that evening, it was time for Miss Crillet to call her daughter Florence. The elderly lady poured on her daughter all the grief deriving from her lonely life as a widow. When Florence hung up, she burst into tears. As the good husband that he had been so far, Jean-Claude hugged her to comfort her. This would be their last embrace, as the adversary was about to burst into the open. An adversary within him. An adversary who believed that death was better than confessing the truth, better than confronting the disappointment of those who loved him. After putting the kids to bed, Ramar waited for Florence to fall asleep too. He then went to the kitchen to fetch a rolling pin. He returned to the marital bedroom and struck Florence on the back of the head, once more and once more, until she surely wouldn't wake up. The morning after, as every Saturday, Caroline and Antoine waited for Mum to prepare their breakfast. Their father calmly announced that Mum was still sleeping and he would cook breakfast for once. After a nice meal, the three sprawled on the sofa to watch a cartoon on the TV. The three little pigs. Caroline huddled next to her dad, but he looked worried. Her father, the doctor, said that she looked ill and she had a temperature. He took her upstairs and asked her to lay in bed where he fetched the thermometer. When he returned, Roman asked Caroline to lie face down, a place of... Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, so he murders his kids. I don't want to go into the details of that, thank you very much. Ramal's work was not yet complete. He climbed into his car and drove 80 kilometers north to Clairvaux-le-Lac, where his parents, Ami and Anne-Marie, lived. He had packed the rifle. Okay, yeah, he shot his kids. There's details here. Um, I don't like reading them. I don't think you should have to hear them because it's just not okay. Jean-Claude and his parents shared a pleasant lunch on what appeared to be just another pleasant Saturday. After clearing the table, Roman offered his dad to help him fix an annoying gas leak problem that they had upstairs. <laughs> that sounds like something you should have fixed, you know, by a professional before. It's like, oh yeah, there's been a gas leak going on. It's been going on for a few weeks. Just haven't had the repairman in. Gas leak. Like, I remember once I was just sitting in my office and like, it smells like gas in here. So I'm, it's not one of those things you're just like, okay. <laughs> I immediately call the gas company and they send like a guy really fast and he's like, oh yeah, this pipe's leaking a little bit, the one that goes into your boiler. And I'm like, holy f***, can you fix it? And he's like, yeah, of course, I'll fix it right now because <laughs> this is an emergency. He had somehow managed to plant his rifle upstairs unnoticed. While Ami was looking for the exact spot of the leak, Ramal retrieved the weapon and pointed it at his father's back. Downstairs, Anne-Marie heard a shot and raced to the upper floor. Upon seeing her son clutching a rifle, she asked, Jean-Claude, what's going on? And a shot was his answer. Roman then fell the last occupant of the house, his parents' Labrador, who was whimpering next to the bodies of his beloved humans. Later, Roman would later declare, I thought Caroline wanted to keep him. She loved him. Three generations of the Roman family had been erased from existence in the span of hours, but the spree of the imposter, the adversary, was not over yet. After a change of clothes, the murderer got back into his car and drove all the way to Paris for an appointment or rather a date with his on-and-off mistress. Kareem was waiting for Jean-Claude to pick her up and take her out for a special night, a dinner party with the Minister of Health, one of the many influential and entirely fictitious connections that he flaunted. The minister's home was in a wooded area near Fontainebleau. It was an hour's drive south of Paris. After a long drive in the night, Roman admitted that he had gotten lost. He stopped the car in a remote area, climbed out, and asked Kareem to wait there. He picked up something from the trunk of the car and then asked his mistress to close her eyes. He had a surprise for her, he said. A nice piece of jewelry. Corinne felt uneasy. She knew something was wrong, but she complied nonetheless. As she waited for a gold necklace to clasp around her neck, she instead felt a spray of gas to her face, followed by an electric shock to her stomach. 
Ramon had attacked her, trying to stun her first with tear gas and then a taser. When both methods failed to work, he tried to strangle her, but Corrine put up fierce resistance and the two ended up grappling on the ground. After a prolonged fight, Ramon gave up and he apologized for his behavior. He begged Corrine to forgive him. He had not meant to hurt her. He was being treated for lymphoma and his therapy side effects had caused him to experience outbursts of violence. Surprisingly, Corrine bought the whole story. <laughs> Dude. When Ramon drove her back home, she promised not to tell anybody about the whole puzzling yet terrifying experience. After dropping off Corrine, Ramon drove south the entire night. The next morning, Sunday, he was back in his home in Prévesin-Mont. Jean-Claude spent a quiet day at home with his dead family, reading the papers and watching TV. You f***ing psycho. What the f***? In the afternoon, he phoned Corrine to make sure that she had kept her promise not to talk about the attack. She reassured him that she hadn't, but urged him to seek professional help to treat his violent episodes. Well, that loose end was sorted. It was now time to sort out all the other ends. At 3 a.m. the following morning, Ramon closed all doors and windows and doused the bodies of his wife and children in gasoline. He poured more flammable liquid over the stairs and the attic. Next, he retrieved some Nembutal, a powerful sleeping pill that had been sitting in his medicine cabinet for 10 years. He swallowed an excessive dose, lit a fire, and then laid in bed next to his wife. Flames crept up the Ramon's house and soon were visible from outside. That's when the street cleaners noticed the inferno and called the firefighters. The only possible outcome. While Jean-Claude Ramon lay in a coma, the gendarmerie had realized that five members of his family had been murdered. The officers searched his BMW and found a handwritten note. It said, A banal accident and an injustice can cause madness. I'm sorry. The cryptic message read almost like a confession, which piqued the interest of the leading investigator, Colonel Impini. On the 11th of January, Impini was notified by the coroner that Ramon's children and parents had all been killed by the same caliber 22 rifle. By checking Ramon's movements, the colonel learned that on the 5th of January, he had bought a box of shells and a silencer compatible with the 22 rifle. Not only that, he had also purchased a taser and a canister of tear gas. Back in Paris, when Corrine learned that the gendarmerie was investigating Ramon, she finally decided to inform officers of the botched attempt on her life. Impini then proceeded to question the WHOHR department, and surprise, surprise, they revealed that Dr. Ramon never worked for them, and a quick inquiry with the French Medical Association revealed that Ramon was no doctor at all. Investigators briefly thought Jean-Claude may have actually been an international spy or an arms dealer or a high-level swindler embroiled with Megaboer, a financial company at the center of a large scandal at the time. Once again, Corrine was instrumental in piecing the whole story together. She told Impini that Ramon had embezzled the proceeds from her flat sale and more victims came forward. For a short moment, it seemed as though the fake doctor was the center of an exciting scandal worthy of a carré thriller, but the veil had been quickly torn to reveal only a chasm of unspeakable squalid sadness. A chasm that had been dug by a broken sad man who had built the life he wished by harming those who had loved him. A sad man who had tried to end it all but could not complete the last step with a half-hearted suicide attempt conducted with expired barbiturates. I will not go into details of the trial, which could only end in one way for Ramon. A life sentence with a minimum of 22 years to be served in prison. <laughs> minimum of 22 years hopefully there's like the maximum is like yeah just uncapped because this guy should never leave prison i'll only mention the important poignant question which the judge addressed to him which was why roman answered because he's in this crazy spiral he didn't know any way out it's insane and he's like it's it's so crazy he just got so deep i mean and then obviously becoming a murderer is not the answer but it's like he just i think that's the only exit he saw wasn't the title of this section like the only possible outcome Obviously, that's not the only possible outcome. Coming clean would have been a better outcome. Um, but I think that's all he saw. Well, we've got his answer here. I've asked myself the same question every day for the last 20 years. 
I don't have an answer. Great. <laughs> That's satisfying, isn't it? Wrap up. What had driven an otherwise promising or at least normal young man to string together such a toxic cascade of lies? The press of the time sought answers in his psyche, describing him as a malignant narcissist or even a psychopath entirely devoid of empathy, one who, in order to maintain a grandiose idea of self, had lied, cheated, and eventually killed. But I prefer to quote another explanation laid out by Dr. Sebastian Chapelon in his paper Jean-Claude Raymond, Emperor of Lies or Slave to His Followers. It was published in November 2020. According to Chapelon, Raymond was fueled by a frenetic desire to find his own identity in others, to please others, to exist through others. Far from lacking empathy, he suffered from a kind of ultra-empathy, which may stem from a need to defend from a highly demanding environment at an early age. This leads to a psychological amputation of what would have been the natural desires and drivers of the individual's psyche. The price to pay for this amputation is a lack of connection with one's internal reality. In this interpretation, Ramon was not the narcissistic liar. He had been forced to lie to satisfy the narcissists and the selfish expectations of his parents. He had built a monument to the non-existent Dr. Ramon, a monument which his parents could proudly admire. Interestingly, this ultra-empathy allowed Ramon to instinctively tune into the aspirations and desires of those around him, which was the basis for his success as a scammer. Yeah, scam, like, being a con man is one of those interesting ones where it's like, you've got to have, like, no empathy because you're ripping people off, but you also need to have, like, empathy because you need to be able to understand people to manipulate them, which is kind of an interesting contradiction. Now, you may or may not agree with Dr. Chapelon's analysis. In that case, if you wish to understand the truth behind Ramon's motivation, why not asking yourself? In 2019, an appeals court granted parole to the murderer. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what, France? <laughs> This guy is free. This guy is free. <laughs> he murdered his parents, his children, his wife, his parents-in-law. You smoking crack, French justice system? As of today, Jean-Claude Ramon lives in the Benedictine Abbey of Notre Dame de Fongambeau, not far from Poitiers in central france in 2019 one of the fathers at the abbey stated to the press that he hoped ramon had repented and found sanctuary with the monks who wanted to give him the opportunity to place himself before god his last judge on the gates of eternity i will leave it to you to comment what sort of eternity awaits this adversary of truth yeah i don't want to say like i'm not like i know we it sh we should be re for reform and stuff but he murdered his young children i don't know i just feel for that you should rot in prison forever that feels a bit harsh. But again, he murdered his children. Let's end the episode there. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you do listen to this as a podcast, why not leave us a review? That would be fantastic. If you're watching on YouTube and you're not subscribed yet, what are you up to? Click that subscribe button and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.